it isn't you. Because you are listening to the Inspired Minds podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and your grateful host. That was fun. I'm also your excited host. And why? Because I am going down to Los Angeles tomorrow morning, matter of fact. And why? Well, A, to see some old friends, but B, really, to have the first and maybe not last Inspired Minds dinner. What is that exactly? I decided to try and see if I could invite some past guests from the show and people who don't necessarily know each other and just kind of meet at a restaurant and have some fun. So I'm doing that tomorrow night. Great place called Taylor's Steakhouse, an old place down in Los Angeles. Old school steaks, old school baked potatoes, old like red vinyl leather everywhere. It's an incredible place. So I get to do that. I, you know, Eight months ago, when my friend and I, Michael Lee Simpson, started this little thing, who would have thought that I would be pulling this one off? Um, Michael will be joining us uh, via QuickTime, uh, FaceTime, rather, because <laughs> he's in Florida, so it's a little difficult to fly him over. But it's just, my God, this is such a hoot. Just like the interview that I did with this lovely and talented man, Mr. Jeremy Hellinger. So Hellinger, Jeremy, rather, is the executive editor at People Magazine, He's also an author uh, with a couple of books called Is It True What They Say About Black Men and Storms in Africa? Writes a lot about race and queer issues for The Advocate and Huffington Post, Meter's Digest, The Root, Variety, The Rap, blah, blah, blah. And, but my God, does this man know his entertainment? I mean, you would think so by being the executive editor at People. But what a wonderful guy. He got to start a long time ago at People Magazine, of all things, and kind of rose up the ranks after a while. We talked a lot about the cult of celebrity. I am completely fascinated by that and how that's changed over the last couple of decades uh, from how it had been in the 70s and 80s when I was younger, kind of to how it is now. Um, But honestly, my favorite part of this thing was this guy's a total music dork like I am. Who knew? So I thought I'd rattle off some of the bands that we talked about. This could be fun. The Cure, The Smiths, R.E.M., Olivia Newton-John, the song Magic in particular, Paul McCartney, Billy Joel, Toto, Kate Bush, Kate Peter Gabriel, Trisha Yearwood, Joni Mitchell, John Hyatt, NXS, David Bowie, Neil Young, Tammy Wynette, and Bono, of all things, ladies and gentlemen. So, what a great guy. What a great interview. Um, that's kind of all I got. I'm, I gotta get packed. I'm heading out tomorrow morning. <laughs> Matter of fact, by the time this... Uh, Little show goes up, I think, which will be on uh, Saturday. I will be having the dinner later on that evening. So give me some good vibes. (laughs) I'm tired. I got to go to bed. Have a great night. Day, 4 o'clock in the morning, wherever you are, I am done. Here comes the fun guy. Bye. Well, hello, everybody on the Inspired Minds podcast, you dazzled throng. Please welcome the lovely and talented Jeremy Helliger. Helliger. God, I screwed that up in the beginning. How you doing? <laughs> hey, Jeff. <laughs> well, how's that for an intro, huh? Pretty good. <laughs> right out of the gate. So, thank you so very, very much for doing this, Jeremy. And you know, there's a lot of stuff I want to get into. Um, but... The first question that I always ask on this podcast is the exact same, and that is the following. When you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a song or was it a book or a show? Go. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I my teacher used to have auctions. 
and um, we would like raise money over the course of a term. And at the end of the term, he would like use the money we raised to buy all of these things that we would bid on at the auction. And I won a transistor radio. And I remember going home and being, that radio was attached to my air for months. And I remember going home and just laying, lying in bed with the transistor radio up to my air, listening to the latest, to the like most popular country music and pop radio stations, because those were the two forms of music that I grew up with. Uh. And that just sort of, I mean, I always was a fan of music, but I think that turned me into something more than a fan. I became a bit obsessed. And then in later years, I married my obsession with music, with my love of writing and my talent for writing, and kind of turned that into a career eventually as a music journalist. Yes. And you have answered the second part of my question already. Congratulations. Because part B, the follow-up, <laughs> the follow-up to all that is just what you said. I asked what okay how did that inspire you to get where you are right like what's the through line well it's really funny because my mother if you meet my mom she always tells the story about how when i was about 10 10 11 i walked up to her one day and i said mom i want to be a rock journalist <laughs> and she'll say i had no idea what that was but i knew that he could do it <laughs> Oh, how sweet. <laughs> so I guess maybe subconsciously, I was probably trying to prove to my mother that I could do it. Yeah, yeah. That As, your, as a therapist, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is just an absolutely wonderful thing. And I have to ask, because now I've got this like visual memory of you holding a transistor radio in bed and listening. So what were the songs that you can remember? Do you remember any? Well, it would it would have been around 1980. Huh? So in 19, I, I think the big hits around that time were probably songs like, I remember the first episode of Casey Kasem's American Top 40 that I ever listened to. The number one song was Magic by Olivia Newton-John. Olivia Newton-John, that's a good song. <laughs> And I remember Coming Up by Paul McCartney, yep. It's Still Rock and Roll to Me by Billy Joel, oh. The Stars on 45 Medley, Betty Davis Eyes. Those were all hits Wait a around that time. Wait a minute. Back up. <laughs> Stars on 45, keep on turning. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought I was the coolest person because I was listening to the coolest music. Yes, you were. <laughs> Absolutely were. And before I close, before I move on here, I got to say, I just had this sense memory of about that same age, by the way, because you and I are essentially the same age-ish, and it seems. And I remember listening to, I, I wouldn't go to bed. I just remember this. I wouldn't go to sleep until I heard uh, Africa by Toto on the local radio station. So I'd stay up like for like an hour sometimes waiting for it. Oh, my goodness, Africa. You know what, though? Africa hit number one, the only number one hit. But I always liked Rosanna better. That's a way better song. Rosanna, Rosanna. I liked Rosanna better. Way better. Way better. <laughs> when it goes into the jazz, like, jazz section at the end? 
Yeah, so good, right? So good. Steve. But it only hit number two. Well, they screwed up, obviously. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's, you know, and, and as, you know, it's at 6.15 a.m. my time, and I'm already talking about Toto. I'm good. Um, <laughs> so let's kind of move on here a little bit. Uh, your your story is absolutely fascinating to me, and there's a lot of stuff I want to kind of cover. But it seems that you started your professional gig basically at People, where you are the executive editor, as an intern, like right out of college. Yeah, it was really interesting because at the end of college, I was a little bit nervous because I wanted an internship and it was down to the wire and I hadn't gotten one yet. So we had I, I had gone to a school fair with the National Association of Black Journalists and I had met one of the top editors at Time Magazine, which was owned by the same company as People Magazine. And I sent him a letter saying, you know, I met you at the conference. I'm about to graduate. And I'm wondering, is there an internship that might be available for me? And he actually remembered me and was so impressed that he passed my material along to People Magazine. Uh And People Magazine actually ended up reaching out to me. And to be honest, I was a little bit angry because to me, People Magazine, I was a little snobby. People Magazine was my mom's magazine. Right. You know, I was young, a young kid. I didn't want to work for my mom's magazine. So I kind of went into it thinking, oh, my God, they're going to fly me up to New York. They're going to put me up in a nice hotel. They're going to interview me for an internship. I'll do it but I'm doing it mostly because I want to go to New York. So once I came up and met everyone, by the time I left New York, I really, really wanted it. And I remember um, I, I remember that um, although I really wanted it, I still had reservations about the magazine just because it was about celebrities. It was a magazine that my mother loved. Mm-hmm. But before graduation, I got an internship at the Charlotte Observer huh. in North Carolina. And I remember going up to Charlotte, working there for the summer for three months. And toward the end of my time there, when I was about to come to New York for People Magazine, a friend of mine from college visited me. And we were out at a bar one night. And I was talking to him about the People Magazine internship and a woman overheard us at the bar and she comes over and she goes, what, you're going to be working at People Magazine? That's the kind of thing that people spend their entire careers working towards and you're starting there. Yeah. So when she said that to me, I realized that I had to count my blessings, that this was a really great, great thing. And that's when I really decided I was going to do the best job of my life at People Magazine. Talk about a through line, right? I mean, that's unbelievable. That's like the stories of you hear about, you know, studio executives who were at the, they're the male guy in the beginning. And then they kind of stayed at the same company. It's amazing. And now the question I got for you is that when you were younger and doing that intern kind of writing, what kind of writing were you doing? Well, I started off as a fact checker, uh, as an intern. What interns did back back then were they were basically fact checkers. So I had to really fight to be able to start doing 
music reviews. And from that, I started, I was able to start doing, writing regular stories. And they eventually promoted me to staff writer. But I have to say, I left the magazine for more than 20 years. And I came back last year as executive editor. So, you know, there were like so many things, so many different magazines, so many different countries happened between my first stint at People and my current stint at People. Of course. And clearly you've learned a lot. And that's where, but I got to ask actually about the music review thing, because, you know, I'm a Clearly, I'm a music nerd. You're a music nerd. And so when you were writing the uh, the music reviews, what are some of the – we're talking like probably what, 1985 maybe? No, no, no. This was in the early 90s. Early 90s, sorry. Okay, so yeah. uh, I'm trying to get a, an understanding of some of the bands you wrote about. Okay, the very first music review that I did for People Magazine was on an album by a band called The Shaman. The Shaman, huh. Yeah. And I remember some of the early reviews. I did a review of NXS's album, Welcome to Wherever You Are. I did a review of an album by Hot House Flowers called Songs from the Rain. Yeah, Don't Go was their hit, I think, right? Yeah, but Don't Go, I Don't Go was from their previous album. Ah, right. Um, And um, who else did I review? Wow. I also did reviews for Entertainment Weekly. I remember reviewing um, Do Drops in the Sunshine mm-hmm. by Delight. Mm-hmm. I reviewed, wow, wow, it's so weird. I'm blanking all of a sudden. <laughs> I, remember at, I remember I reviewed David Bowie's Outside album, and I also got to interview David Bowie twice, Yeah, I've which noticed- was kind of my claim to fame. Yeah, that was I- my claim to fame. Yeah, my next question. <laughs> Already ahead of you, my new friend. So I have a specific question about that. And maybe it's a general question, but using Bowie is kind of a lens. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, I used to work at Warner Brothers Records. And, you know, you meet everybody. As you, Clearly, you've met pretty much everybody, or at least you understand that that world. So when I, um, so I always kept every, I kept my excitement dialed down as much as possible whenever, whenever I was around an artist, cause I didn't want to just geek out, you know, make it uncomfortable, make it business and such, but it's hard to hide that. But when I first met Neil Young, I lost my mind. I mean, I just went, I was babbling. I was like, Oh my God, trance is the greatest record. After the gold rush, it's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And just like 30 seconds of that. And he literally stopped me and he said, he's on the phone. He goes, yeah, I ain't anyway, kid. <laughs> And he like moved on, right? So my question is, how, do you ever geek out? You know, I geek out in my head. M- my favorite singer, solo singer of all time is Tammy Wynette. Me too. Continue. Tammy Wynette. Yeah. And I remember when the first time I interviewed, I actually interviewed her solo once and I interviewed her and George Jones oh. on the phone once. The first time I interviewed her, she rings me up and I pick up the phone and she goes, Hey, Jeremy, it's Tammy Wynette. <laughs> like, it's just something that happens every day. And it was so hard for me not to geek out, but I didn't. Yeah. Like, yeah. the key, I, the thing that I always did when I interviewed musicians was I didn't geek out, 
But the way that I made them feel at ease uh-huh. was by bringing up something really arcane about their career. Like with Tammy, I talked to her about being a little kid and watching her on Hee Haw singing Womanhood, which was a 1978 hit, but not one of her better known songs. And the fact that I knew that song really impressed her and it put her immediately at ease. And years later, when I met Bono, I met Bono at the Chateau Marmont in front of the elevator. And at the time, the album, All That You Can't Leave Behind was out. And I told him, you know what my favorite song that album was, is In A Little While. And his jaw dropped to the floor and he was like, really? He said, there's a special club of people with good taste in music who count that among their favorite songs. (laughs) So I, I found over my career that the best way to really break the ice and make a musician feel at ease was by knowing their music inside and out and then sort of dropping a comment about one of their tracks that no one else would ever mention. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was always sort of the way in. That's absolutely what I do, actually. Could be honest. <laughs> I'm not kidding. On this show, this is exactly what I do. And here's a good example. I interviewed uh, the editor of uh, all of De Palma movies, all of them, uh, you know, Carrie and this. He did Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, John Hughes, Wife of Pi, like he's a guy named Paul Hirsch, right? I didn't mm-hmm. ask him about Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back. I ended up asking him about this super obscure film he made with De Palma called Phantom of the Paradise back in the mid-70s. And he, he lit up like a Christmas tree. Because people, I, I, I you know... Everyone is going to compliment them on certain things. But I think if there's something that's underappreciated, especially if it's something that they're really proud of, they'll really, really appreciate the fact that you appreciate it. Right. Right. Because it's a binding agent. I heard this term recently, and I just love it, that music is art, but music is a binding agent. And it made me feel so good because Bono is someone that I grew up really respecting. And for him to sort of put me in the category of people with really great taste in music because of something I said about this kind of obscure track on a pretty big album made me feel really, really important. (laughs) Of course it did. Of course. Well, what a lovely, absolutely lovely story. I love these kind of things. And so speaking of stories, how's that for a seg? Speaking of stories, you so I really want to talk about your uh, your book specifically Storms in America or Storms in Africa rather. And um I don't have oh, is it true what they say black uh, about black men? And so these are travel logs, as I understand it, from what I saw. And I just yes. think it's a really wonderful concept to kind of bookend some of these experiences with these books, I guess, literally. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the books, but more importantly, what you really learned from all those experiences? I'm a fan of finding out what people learned. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I was a writer and an editor for many years in New York. And I think I did it because I thought I was good at it. Uh-huh. 
but not because I loved it. Hmm. And it wasn't until I remember the first place I moved when, when I left New York in 2006 was Buenos Aires. Mm. And I remember meeting someone who told me, you know, Jer- and you know, for the first year or maybe two years, I didn't write anything. Mm. I was so burnt, burnt out from 15 years in New York City. I was burnt out and I just sort of like partied and hung out for a couple of years and I remember writing some. I, I, I remember meeting someone who suggested that I do a blog. Hmm. He said it'll be something that's fun. It'll be a way to document your experiences. Think of it sort of like a diary, and you won't have the pressure of deadlines or having to please anyone. And I thought it sounded interesting, and I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I started a blog called Theme for Great Cities where I started writing about my experiences as a gay black man in Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to love writing for the first time because I wasn't doing it for money. I was doing it for love of the game and I wasn't, I wasn't taking on assignments. I was writing about things that were important to me, whether it was, a weird date or a strange encounter or just something that was on my mind. And that sort of evolved into my writing about uh, doing a lot of writing about sex, about my sexual orientation and about race, the racism that I experienced. And it sort of changed my whole approach to writing and I ended up living in several different countries. I lived in Bangkok for a while. I lived in um, Australia for a a while. I lived in Cape Town for a while. And I remember when I was living in Thailand, I was talking to my best friend. And my best friend was saying, you know, you have this with your blog. You have all of these blog entries. You know, I would have people in foreign countries who recognized, who would see me in public and would recognize me from my picture on my blog and approach me and say, oh my God, I love your blog. Wow. Which to me is crazy. Cool. (laughs) I met a guy in Buenos Aires that way. I met a guy in Berlin that way, which I thought was crazy. Like how is this blog that I'm doing on my couch reaching people around the world? But um. My best friend, Lori, she said, you know, you really ought to consider writing a book. So my first book was actually an extension of my blog where I took blog posts that I had written and sort of revised them and beefed them up and turned them into chapters. And so the book was sort of about my experiences as a fish out of water living in Australia, living in Thailand, living in Buenos Aires. And that book, Is It True What to Say About Black Black Men, was like largely about my outward experiences. You know, what I experienced, you know, funny anecdotes, falling in love in Australia with the guy that I'm now married to. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Um, that was the first book. 
The second book, Storms in Africa, was about the year that I spent living in Cape Town. And that was more of an internal experience. And that book is more about what I learned on the inside. And I think that the big, the, the greatest thing I learned from not only doing the books, but from living in foreign countries where I often didn't speak the language, where I was the underdog. I mean, I've always been the underdog as a gay black, black man, but living in a place where you don't speak the language and you don't have a passport is makes you very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think it taught me a kind of humility that I didn't know before and an appreciation for people from all walks of life. So I reached a point where I, the the woman or the man cleaning the toilet at a hotel or at a restaurant, I approached with the same respect that I would approach the president of a company. And because you, to me, they were all doing really important, important work. Right, right. Yes, <laughs> if I can, if I can get like a little underline right there, ladies and gentlemen, like a visualization of what he just said. I'm going to underline it. It's correct. <laughs> so I think, I think, like learning that humility, it changed me as a person, and it turned me into a much more. God, I want to use the right words here. I think it turned me into a much more open person. It turned me into a much more accepting person. And it turned me into someone who doesn't take myself as seriously. Although from my writing, people might think, oh, Jeremy, you take yourself way seriously. But I really don't. I mean, compared to who I was when I was living in New York... I really, I've, I've, I've really become a much more humble, modest person than I was in my previous life. I like I, to think, at least. Well, I, from where I'm sitting, standing, honestly, currently, it sounds that's like that's correct. Um, because when I here's what I think, honestly, I have a similar story in terms of just like I mentioned earlier about bouncing around the world. And I went to work at an orphanage in Cambodia and a bunch of stuff. And I think the thing that really kind of, to be honest with you, pulled me out of some darkness was just this connection. Because I've been saying this for a while that we've, we're in a pandemic of disconnection now. And the way to get out of all that is to, I don't know, gee, connect. And when I started to travel, I had the same experience. It was that empathy. It was that kind of mm. view of what's important. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's a wonder. Um, I have other questions. I can't wait for this one. This is going to be a fun one, I think. We'll find out what happens. I'm not fun. Let's just see where this goes. So I read a review that you had done on the show Fire Island on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Pretty okay? And I'm going to quote you some lines, and then we're going to discuss them. I was singing when I freed you, but my pride was just a veil. I pretended not to need you. Now my heart tells a different tale from Hearts in Armor by Trisha Yearwood. And you had, you wrote this, and I think this is so wonderful. Hearts in Armor, those three little words for me, so perfectly captured the essence of love that dare not speak his name, and that this concept of people have to protect their hearts by building fortresses around them. And it 
I, when I saw hearts in armor, just like you did, I was kind of taken aback. What a phrase. I'll never forget when Trisha Yearwood released that album. And that title, it stuck with me for months and it kept going round and round in my head. And I kept thinking, I wish I had come up with that phrase. I need to find some way to pay tribute to that amazing album title at some point. It took me nearly 30 years, but I feel it's something we all do. And, you know, I met my husband in 2010 and we dated for several years, split up for like six years and then got back together in 2019 and we're now married. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why we were able to get back together in 2019 was because I broke the armor that was around my heart. And I decided that I was going to be vulnerable because we hadn't spoken for six, six years. And over those six years, I had never gotten over him, but I was afraid to reach out because I was afraid of what, of how he would respond mm-hmm. if I reached, reached, reached out. I couldn't handle the idea of rejection. And finally, I just said, screw it. I'm just going to go for it, which I did. And mm-hmm. he responded the way that I wanted him to, mm-hmm. but... Because of our history, you know, it took him a while to really believe what was happening because we reconnected and everything fell into place. But it took him a while to um, really trust in what was happening. And I think the old me would have backed off and said, well, if he doesn't know that he wants this, I'm just going to move on. But I didn't. I sat and I was patient and I said, you know, I'm going to let this, I'm going to let what happens happen. I am going to keep my heart out of armor, put it on the line. I'm going to let him know that I want this and maybe he won't want it. Maybe he'll reject me. And if he does, at least I can live the rest of my life knowing that I did what I could and then I can truly move on. But maybe he'll feel the same way. (laughs) And it took a little while, but it turned out that he did feel the same way. And now we're married and living in New York City and, you know, everything is great. And it feels like, I think he had a lot of growing of he had a lot of growing to do. And I think he was probably he was on a very similar trajectory that I was on, learning to be vulnerable and learning to be open. So we were like living separate lives, but on similar trajectories. And we came back together at the right time, at the perfect time, at the time when we were finally ready to Mm. be open. And to risk, like, just being crushed. And I think that's the only way that we're ever happy. I love the thing that you say. It's never too late to smelt the armor and open our hearts. Yeah. It's just a wonderful phrase for it. Unfortunately, though, if you don't smell the armor, you end up with what I'm starting to call a calcified heart. 
right? Because mm-hmm. all those unresolved traumas and all those unresolved issues, they start to calcify and then they start to stratify. Like any any rock is born, you know, that way with stratification of the calcification, basically. And then you need a jackhammer to get in. And sometimes it doesn't work. And that's why I think it's beautiful when people open their hearts and are completely vulnerable. I um, There's a song, um, a John Hyatt song that Linda Ronstadt covered on her We Ran album called I See Blue Heart. And it's such a beautiful song. And every time I listen to it, to me, the song is almost like a cautionary tale of who I've never wanted to become. Someone who has been burnt to the point where my heart ices over. Yes. And I can't feel anymore. Yeah. Or I don't allow myself to feel anymore. Right. Because the problem also with calcification in any of these metaphors is that essentially you're dead by that point. So you're kind of almost a zombie, you know, at least that's the way I visualize this is that, you know, there's the heart dead by that point. Once it's calcified that much and it's dark and you hate everything and you're afraid, that's really what that is, afraid of everything, then you're kind of dead if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. Like life to me, like life isn't worth living if you're not willing to open yourself up to pain. Yeah. You can't play it safe. Absolutely. And thank you for giving me that hearts in armor uh, song, which you did inadvertently. Uh, So I'm going to go listen to it, which leads me actually off the top of my head. Is there like a go-to record that you have to kind of chill you out, I suppose, for lack of a better phrase. Mine personally is Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. That's my, when I need to, when I need to get into a space, that's what I go to. Wow. Interesting question. Whenever I think of, I have several, you know, Desert Island discs, but when I think of the essential album that if I could only listen to one album for the rest of my life, the album that always pops immediately into my head is Turbulent Indigo by Joni Mitchell. Whoa. Bye, <laughs> Which I actually reviewed either for People or Entertainment Weekly. I think Entertainment Weekly. And, you know, I love Joni Mitchell. Blue is one of my favorite albums of all time. And in the 90s, she made a, she had a creative renaissance when she released this album, Turbulent Indigo, that ended up winning the Grammy for Best Pop Vocal Album. Sure did. And it's an album that people, you know, people are so caught up in her classic period that I think it's overlooked. But this is such a beautiful album. And it's not surprising because you know this because you're one yourself. When you're an artist, which you are, obviously, then you, you have to create like people like Joni Mitchell or Neil Young or, you know, the late Tom Petty or any of these people, they have to create because otherwise they will die. In my opinion, you know, like real artists, because they have that drive that almost they have to have that, that almost with exorcism sometimes of just get this writing out of me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally relate to that. Yeah. I figured as much. Uh, cause I'm the same way, quite frankly. I mean, I'm a musician and I write and do my own thing, but you know, even being, to be honest with you, even being a therapist, I, I just started this stuff out, but it's a miracle 
because there is a lot of art to it. Somebody said actually that good therapy is 70% art, 20% science and 10% luck, which I thought was amazing. And as such, I want to talk before, well, first, can I really quickly tell you my amazing story about Johnny Marr from the Smiths? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, there's a band called the Smiths. There's also a band called the Cure and there's also a band called REM. Those are the trifecta of Mr. Jeff Watson in about in the late 80s, okay, or even mid-80s. And the Smiths were this legendary band from the UK, and they started out like in the 80s or so, and they're still magical albums. They broke up a long time ago, and the lead singer, Morrissey, is famously known for being a terrible human being, but Johnny Marr, I heard it, is always a good guy. So I met Warner Brothers about 10 years ago, uh, and... Somebody calls me and says, uh, get up in my office right now. It's Johnny Marr. You got to get up here. He's incredibly cool. And I'm like, bye. So I left this meeting and went upstairs and he's there and he was charming. Oh my God. The guy was so funny. He was incredible. We were like BFFs out of the gate and I'm freaking out. But here's the punchline. Assistant comes in and says, hey, does anybody want any food orders? And we're going down the list. And I said, hey, I'm going to have a burger, please. And he goes, don't you know meat is murder? <laughs> right? I mean, it was amazing. So that's my Johnny Marr story. <laughs> well, you just named my three favorite bands of all time. Oh, I know. I did my research. Number one, The Smiths. Number two, The Cure. Number three, R.E.M. And my musical trajectory is really weird because growing up as a young, young kid, my introduction to music was through gospel and country because that's okay. what my parents listened to. I think that my parents kind of thought, you know, we were very religious and my parents thought that country was the closest form of secular music to gospel, which yeah. I guess they never really listened to the lyrics. George and, Jones was talking about Jesus. <laughs> and later on, I added pop music to the mix and then rock and roll. And in the mid-80s, I bought the album Life's Rich Pageant by uh -huh. yep. And that was the beginning of my love affair with alternative music, oh which at the time was called College Rock. College Rock. By the way, Fall On Me. No, I got that in my head. What a song. Or Superman? Uh, or amazing. Fall On Me is just like Fall amazingness. Oh, my God. And amazingness. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to go listen to R.E.M. if you've never heard it before, but because you'll understand what I'm about ready to say is that the bass player, a guy named Mike Mills, is like the unsung hero in that band because harmonies are insane. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Oh, my God. I had lunch with Peter Buck one time, and that's why I actually kind of did nerd out, by the way. It was also kind of... <laughs> and I love R.E.M.'s music. I love their music all the way to the end. I even love the album Around the Sun, which no one loved, not oh, even wow. R.E.M. <laughs> and I love that album. Love that album. To me, the song, The Worst Joke Ever, is amazing. Amazing. Okay. I, you know what, for you, buddy, my new friend, my new, uh, maybe I'll go. I'll, maybe I'll go we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. I have this is this is the big kahuna. I'm so excited for this one. So I want to talk a little bit about the cult of, of celebrity throughout. America, specifically 200 years ago. So I, I, you know, I'm fascinated by people who are, I'm fascinated by the fascination of celebrity culture, right? Because I know there's a lot of class fantasy that kind of goes on with that. Like, oh, look at them. I am not that person. I want to be that person. And there's this, you know, that transference of that stuff. But I found something interesting. So 
I didn't really know this, but I guess the cult of the cult of celebrity kicked off kind of like in the mid, like late 1700s with Lord Byron. I, apparently, he posted his poem Don Juan as like massive uh, poem, and he was stalked and he had like groupies, and it was. And then it went on to this guy named Alexis Soyer, who's a French cook in London. In the 19th century, he started selling his own bottled sauces and started putting pictures of himself with his trademark red beret on the labels. So then he was a star. One other thing I think is interesting is that apparently in 1911, there was a theater producer who literally said that the star system in America loomed so large because Americans were what he called, quote, an individual loving people. That that was interesting. But my favorite thing is, because this ties into you, especially when it comes to People Magazine and 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 many things that you've written for, that apparently in the 1830s, I guess the news decided to become more commercial. So instead of doing five cents a paper, they narrowed it down to a, a penny a paper. They were called penny papers. So everyone could read them, not just the elite. So the subject matter became more broad, right? And then that's also, they, they offset the cost because of advertising. They figured that out. And like, oh, we'll just put advertising in and we'll knock the cost down and anybody can read it. And then that exploded, apparently, the kind of the celebrity culture world at that time. Thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, I struggle sometimes with the cult of celebrity because it's changed so much from the, in the in the nineties, in, in the early nineties, when I started at People Magazine, it was a lot different than it is now. You know, for one thing, back then you didn't have reality TV. True. And you know, you mentioned Lord Byron. You know, from the earliest days, like I loved watching documentaries, oh. and I wa- I watched one document documentary on Ulysses S. Grant when they talked about how in the days after the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant was the most famous man in America. Like, he was beloved. He was Mm -hmm. absolutely beloved. He was a celebrity. And we know he was a celebrity because he was the general, the Union general, who basically won the war. Right. In the 90s, when I started at People Magazine... Celebrities were celebrities for a reason. Mm-hmm. Because they were great actors, mm-hmm. or they were great singers, or they wrote a great book. Amen. And now I turn on the TV, and there's just all of these, especially, you know, watching on TLC. Um, you have these shows like Sister Wives and Welcome to Plathville. Where you have people who are celebrities because they're on TV. And they're also, and I'm just going to say this out loud, I don't care. They're terrible. Let's just move. They're not creating anything. No. They're not doing anything. As a matter of fact, and, as a matter of fact I call that subtraction TV. Yeah. And, and I watched an episode of, um, I, I watched the Kardashians when Kim Kardashian talks about how I guess, I mean, she does do a lot of good social work that I don't think she gets attention for. I agree. But um, she was talking, I think she was kind of trying to justify her celebrity Mm. by talking about the dress she wore to the Met Gala. It was, I guess, a dress that Marilyn Monroe had worn decades ago. Okay. 
And she basically starved herself in order to fit into this dress. And she was talking about fitting into this dress like it was, and the process of starving herself to fit into it, like it was a creative process. And finally wearing the dress and being photographed in the dress was the finished work of art. And I was watching this and thinking, is this what it's come to? Yeah. (laughs) Is this what it's come to? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes. And (laughs) let's think about this for just a heartbeat. Jonas Salk, you know him? Yes, Uh, yes. Because you're a smart guy. He was a rock star. He was he was basically a rock star back then, because you know he saved m- many many people. And by the way, you do know the story about him giving the money away, right? Mm-hmm. So he's my hero. He will all. I'm the president of that guy's fan club for life. But that was a celebrity back then. Can you? Like Fauci is is a security detail for God's sakes. You know? Yeah. It's just. It's just heartbreaking, but I really thought it was interesting, though, about the cult, because I agree with you that, that celebrity dumb has changed dramatically. Yeah, and it's it's sad because I get a little bit nostalgic for the old day, and I feel like an old fart. Me too. Know, this old guy who gets nostalgic for the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, sure. because things, you know, and there are still people creating great art now. There are still great musicians now. But I feel that that it's been so corrupted Correct. by the reality stars and by the people who become YouTube famous or social yeah. media famous or TikTok famous. Yeah. The fact that a guy can become a star on TikTok because he's riding his skateboard around town you know. to a Fleetwood Mac song. Yeah. It makes me sad. It makes me sad because why are people, why do people care? Why are people looking at this video? Why is that resonating with people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you know, another thing too is that, you know, musicians these days, I mean, I got out of the business kind of when TikTok started to take off, I guess, but Every marketing plan has a thing to every band, and I'm sure it says do a TikTok video. And what that means is you got about 20 minutes or 20 seconds, let's say, to do something crazy and wild and wacky. And like you just wrote a song about death and suicide, and now you got to be doing this. Yeah. You know, it, it yeah. really sucks the life out of this stuff. You know, I, I actually just wrote a blog, to, a blog post on Kate Bush. <gasps> and, you know, she's been. Yes. She's had this resurgent success yes. with running up that hill. Yes. I've I've been a Kate Bush fan since the eighties. I remember when running up that hill debuted yes. on American Top Forty Wait. in nineteen eighty five and Wait. being so excited. Wait, don't give up. Peter Gabriel. Don't Boom. Peter Gabriel. Boom. And the article is, you know, the article is called Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill Problem. Nice. And the reason I call it a problem is because in the United States, even before this song became a top five success, she was a one-hit wonder because Running Up That Hill, which only peaked at number 30 in 1985, you know, was her only top 40 hit. Huh. Interesting. And here we are 37 years later, and the same song is a hit, a bigger hit than ever. But it's still her only top 40 hit. She's still a one-hit wonder. Right. And it 
makes me so sad yeah. that people will never discover what an amazing talent she is. She's been nominated three times for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. She still hasn't been inducted. Uh-huh. And I think if Stranger Things had used a different song, if they had used Babushka or uh-huh. Wow yeah. or Under Ice oh my God. or Don't Give Up or Don't Give Up, yeah. maybe... Kate Bush would now be a two-hit wonder, and she wouldn't have that stamp of one-hit wonder. Well, you know, you're right, actually. I just realized Don't Give Up is a sink dream. If, any, if there's any licensors out there, a little tip for the hat here, go get that song, too. Yeah, It's an amazing song, but it only peaked at, like, number 72. Yeah, it's a crime. You know, Kate Bush had a couple of hits, big hits in the UK, but she never really had that success in the United States. And I'm so happy that people are discovering oh. that song. Oh. But I'm a little bit sad that it took a Netflix no. TV series for people to discover it. And I'm a little bit sad that they probably won't discover the rest of the catalog unless Stranger Things like picks up another one of her songs. Yeah, but <laughs> not going to happen, of course. So how, um, but last is one last thing on this topic. I'm just getting this. I'm remembering so well the video of the, of that two of them in that don't give up video where all they're doing is hugging. Holding, holding yes. For fucking yes. Five yeah. It. Can you imagine yeah. that one? Like the, the one sheet. Okay. Uh, Kate Bush, you're just going to be basically uh, hugging Peter Gabriel for about five minutes. Camera's going to kind of spin around and we're good. Done. But it's such a memorable video. God, it's incredible. Uh, okay, so, God, what a fantastic conversation. I'm going to wrap this up. going to be respectful of your time. And here's how I like to do this. Uh, as a creative, as I like to say, or writer, or however you want to phrase this, when do you know that you're done? I read, you know, a few um, years ago, I was at the Picasso Museum in Paris, And I remember seeing a statement by Picasso where he talked about how a work of art is never done. Like you're always working to make it better. Like a true artist is always working to make it better. And a little bit later, I saw a a quote by Kanye West where he was basically saying the same thing. And I really agree with that. I, I feel like... There's a point where I think that something that I've written is ready. You know, one of the first things I do when I think it's done is I'll read it to my husband. Ah. And then after I read it to him, I'll revise it a little bit more. And there's a certain point where I know that it's ready to present to the world, but I'm an obsessive, obsessive, obsessive editor. And I'm constantly going back and fine-tuning and updating. So even the Kate Bush story that I posted yesterday, that came from a Kate Bush story that I posted a few weeks ago that I was never happy with. Huh? I was never happy with. And so it had been in the back of my mind thinking, how can I make this better? And yesterday... I woke up at like 2 a.m. and I 
figured out how to make it better, which, which I did. And I'm finally happy with it. Wow. And I'm finally happy with it. But I don't know that I'm done with it. Yeah. So I think there's a, I, I think you're never done. I think there's a moment when you're satisfied, perhaps. Okay. But you're never done. You're never done. This is, that's me. I have two, basically, okay, here's the deal. I basically have two questions on this goddamn show. One was the first one about the inspiration stuff. And then that was the other one. I ask everybody the same question, right? Because I get these just wealth of information. It's like, for me, it's amazing to kind of sit back and be a spectator to the question or to the answer, I guess. Because everyone kind of chops it up a little differently, but they all mm-hmm. kind of do the same thing. And I'm starting, I ask this question also, quite frankly, just so I can kind of get a better understanding of really that whole concept. And, you know, you hear things like, you know, a, a great work of art is uh, it's just abandoned, you know, um, or the thing you were talking about, about ah, it's just it's just done. And I love it. So thank you for giving me that information. So <laughs> to sum this show up, we're going to do a little thing, a little tradition I like to do on the old show here. We're going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to say goodbye. You're going to say goodbye, and then we're going to pretend to hang up, and then we'll chat for uh, about a couple minutes after say goodbye. Officially, deal? That sounds great. Fantastic. So here we go off to the races. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for getting to the end of the <laughs> Congratulations. This is the end. I want to – Jeremy, thank you so much for this conversation. I have had a blast. You are my – you're like my brother now, especially if the fact that we were talking about Kate Bush for a while. <laughs> I'm good. You're my guy. So thank you for doing it. Your turn. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed this discussion. And um, I'm so glad to find out that our musical tastes are so closely aligned. That's always the best part. And we're going to hang up three, two, quote unquote, hang up three, two, one, click. <laughs>